This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 356th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a Brit of Pakistani descent who is a fast-rising young actor, rapper, and activist. In 2017, for his performance on the HBO limited series The Night Of, he became the first Muslim man and South Asian person ever to win an acting Emmy, specifically Best Actor in a Limited Series or TV Movie, and also appeared on the cover of Time magazine as one of its 100 most influential people in the world. His film credits include 2008's Shifty, 2010's Four Lions, and 2014's Nightcrawler, installments of the Star Wars, Bourne, and Marvel franchises, namely 2016's Rogue One and Jason Bourne, and 2018's Venom, and most recently, Darius Martyr's Sound of Metal, a 2020 indie in which I think he gives his best performance yet as a young drummer whose life is upended when he begins to go deaf. Riz Ahmed. Over the course of our conversation, the 37-year-old and I discussed how his early acting and music both reflected and perpetuated inner conflict about his identity, how Nightcrawler and The Night Of raised his profile, leading to fame and big studio opportunities, but also to pressure that resulted in a physical breakdown, why he has since sought to return to his acting roots in indie projects, most notably Sound of Metal, Plus, much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to have you. And uh, I guess before we go any further, let me just ask, how are you doing during this crazy time? I, I had read that it has affected you personally, like so many of us. And I, I guess just how are you holding up? Well, thank you for asking. Yeah, it's certainly a tricky time for, I think, everyone, isn't it, right now? And I think in a way, the fact that we're all going through it albeit to different extents and facing different levels of difficulty, 
the fact that it is a shared experience does make it a little bit easier. Um, yeah, as you, as you pointed out, um, yeah, we've lost a couple of close family members, unfortunately, due to COVID. And um, I think in a way it's just, you know, like any difficulty or hardship, I think it just forces you to refine and reassess what really matters. And ultimately that is a kind of a gift well, I'm sorry for your loss. And uh, on this podcast, you know, where you really go back to the beginning and, and so just always begin by asking our guests where they were born and raised and what their parents did for a living. So if we can start there. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Northwest London near Wembley. My dad used to be in the, in the Merchant Navy of Pakistan as an engineer. And then he moved into kind of shipping, the shipping industry as a kind of broker and agent. And my mum used to work for the Department of kind of social security, you know, making sure people got their welfare and stuff and were taken care of. And after having me, her third child, she um, was a housewife. Yeah, yeah. Now, just reading as much as I could about your your life story, uh, it seems like a big turning point in your childhood was basically moving to a, a school, I believe it's called Merchant Tailors, where you've described, you know, the seven years that you spent there as, quote, almost a metaphor for how Britain was changing, close quote. What did you mean by that? What was that? Why was that such a kind of impactful period? Yeah. So um, when I started at Merchant Tailors, which is a school that I thought was brilliant and I was so lucky to get to, and it really kind of impacted and changed my life, opened my life horizons um, wide open. When I started there, I think it was the early 90s, 93, something like that. And that was the year that Stephen Lawrence was murdered. Stephen Lawrence was um, a black teenager who was murdered in, in, in the kind of London suburbs. And it was kind of like the UK's Rodney King moment in a way, you know, not dissimilar to the George Floyd moment um, in terms of it being just a flashpoint for conversation, a wake-up call about race relations in Britain. And so there was this kind of, um, these growing pains, this reckoning with our colonial past and some of the injustices in our society was really kind of a, a new round of that conversation. Of course, it's not a brand new conversation. Every generation has it and activists in the 80s and 70s and 50s going all the way back. But a new generation was starting to have that conversation and face some of those questions just as I started there. And I started at a school that at the point at which I started was still had a boarding school attached to it um, that was perhaps the kind of place where maybe diplomats would send their kids and um, on kind of own clothes day when you didn't have to wear a uniform, people would wear maybe England rugby shirts. And by the time I left that school, it was a school where the boarding house had been shut. It was a school where Jewish and Indian accountants, you know, newly middle class communities would send their kids aspirationally to get them a good education. And on own clothes day, it was where, you know, people would wear whatever kids in the, you know, kids would emulate whatever the rappers were wearing at that time. And so it was a kind of this, you know, it went from being kind of, I guess, an 85% white school to being a 50-50 white and then other racial groups kind of school student body. And so I guess that's what I say in terms of it being a microcosm for that change. And in many ways, I feel like I went through the growing pains of, of seeing that change and um, firsthand. And, and I think it really molded me in terms of 
trying to get used to being in situations where you might stick out a little bit or where you might not immediately naturally take to and learning to adapt to that and learning to actually stand your ground and fight for that. And in a way, that's something that I took forwards with me to then Oxford University in an even more extreme way. And then and then the, the film industry and the British film Absolutely. industry. Well, I was going to say from, from what I've been able to gather, it, this was not just happening around you. You were part of the change. I mean, you, for instance, I read about the, the sort of history of head boys at that school where there had never been people of color. And then you kind of orchestrated a movement to, that, that resulted in that changing. And, and it seems like things like that, where working within the system to improve the system, as you say, that seems to have continued at Oxford in, in terms of bringing music and culture there in ways that it, there weren't there before and, and on and on. So I guess before I go any further, I guess I, I kept coming across a guy by the name of Mr. Roseblade, who, you, who you've spoken <laughs> about a lot. <laughs> Why was this person so uh, impactful to you? Man, this is crazy talking about this stuff. It's like, I love how like, well-researched you are. Okay, Mr. Roseblade was a guy from the north of England, Wolverhampton, which is a heavily um, South Asian kind of urban center in the UK. But he's a man of Jewish descent who spoke Punjabi from the north. So you've got this Jewish northerner who speaks Punjabi teaching English literature at this posh, you know, boys' school. And uh, this private school. And so he kind of had a natural affinity to those of us boys who felt like we didn't quite fit in in terms of race and class and took us under his wing. And in that kind of classic Dead Poet Society style would kind of try and, you know, teach us Hamlet alongside Ginsburg and, um, you know, would would just throw the world open to us and make us realize that that these the, you know, these works of literature, or these plays, they, they were ours. They were receptacles for our own experience. They weren't another place that we had to travel to and leave our own selves behind. He would relate them directly to our experience. And that was quite profound for me in realizing that you can, yeah, you can bring yourself to, to, um, to your creativity, you know, um, I think it took me an even longer time to really truly embody that. And I think maybe even only in the last few years did I, did I fully take on the kind of impact of those lessons in allowing myself to bring myself to my work rather than what I think people expect or want from me. Um, but, but that was very impactful. But yeah, as you say, there's always this dance, isn't there, between working within the system and outside the system. On the one hand, yes, you know, I did organize this kind of movement uh, to like say, OK, we're all going to vo- vote for, for people of color, for, for black or brown kids that have all been suspended. And then let's see who, if, who they really make the head boy and will show up their democracy to be a farce. But, you know, outside the system as well, we're also getting into a lot of trouble, you know, and, and many people wanted me to, be, you know, to, to, to leave that school. But really, ultimately, I'm indebted to the to the teachers and the staff there for put for putting up with me and for for. Yeah, I, I guess allowing um, me that space to work out who I was. And, and, and I'm very lucky in particular to have parents who managed to convince all the teachers to let me stay in that school. <laughs> well, I think it seems like a, a, another part of figuring out your identity would have been through music, which remains, you know, it's interesting how half the people know, it seems that you are an actor, but don't know that you're uh, also very 
you know, successful musician and then vice versa for the other half. This music, it seems like even predates acting for you. Why, you know, how in your teens did that become such a, a big part of your life? And, and to the extent that your involvement with it really evolved during those years and then again into time at Oxford? You know, I guess ultimately it comes down to a mixture of things. One of them is a desire to kind of express yourself and write your own story, which writing your own lyrics and delivering them and, you know, really allows you to embody like and define who you are and your story. But I guess in another sense, it was just like being a really hyperactive kid who idolized his big brother. My big brother was very big into hip hop. He told me not to listen to these cassettes because they were, you know, had swearing on them. So as a 10-year-old, the first thing I do is memorize, you know, all <laughs> these cassettes with all this swearing on it. And I guess, you know, the that, that African-American experience and, the, you know, the, the African-American uh, and just, you know, the African diaspora's kind of blueprint for finding dignity and self-definition through art and creativity has just been a gift to the world and to minorities and, and marginalized communities around the world. And so it was a ready-made template for us as South Asian working class kids to kind of borrow from and take from. And, um, you know, something that I kind of talk about on my music, this idea of like being Mowgli, you know, here we were kind of these little brown kids that were separated from their village of origin, kind of concocted by the white imagination to, to, to be plucked from there and roam the urban jungle, just like Mowgli is. And uh, who does Mowgli look up to? He tries to emulate the Black Panther. You know, he tries to emulate the other um, people he finds in that, in, in the personalities he finds in that, in that jungle. And so there was, a, there was a kind of template there for... Yeah, self-definition, self-expression and defiance in the context of what was, you know, a school, but also, you know, let's face it, also a country that was kind of asking questions of you, like, what are you doing here, basically? Mm -hmm. So having already been a minority at what we would, I guess, call the equivalent high school, you now go off to Oxford, where it's going to be even more... I would imagine extreme of a kind of, you know, demographic uh, disparity. Once you, I mean, just getting in there for anybody is a remarkable achievement. You get there now. And I wondered at that point what your outlook was going in, you know, what are you, what were you thinking you wanted to study? And what at that point did you imagine the long-term future for yourself would look like? I mean, it doesn't sound like acting was what you went in there thinking, you would come out doing. So what, what was that initial outlook? Yeah, I mean, I guess I was encouraged by, by some teachers to apply to Oxford and, again, lucky to have, you know, been able to get in. And, and, and um, I didn't know what to expect, to be honest. You know, I remember arriving there my first day and seeing people with kind of bowler hats and bow ties on. And, you know... I remember the first person I met there is a story that I've told before, so forgive me if you've heard it, but I knocked on my neighbor's door to borrow a phone charger and this woman looked at me and, you know, it was a fellow student who was starting out and just sit there I was just, you know, in my, you know, sweatpants and Nikes and my beanie hat and hoodie and she said, she just started laughing and said, oh my God, you remind me so much of Ali G, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, the Sasha Baron Cohen character and I was like, wow, this is the first person I met here, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, I, and I think, you know, I was talking about this earlier today. It's actually a, a kind of lesson that I think I keep learning, which is like the challenge can also be the gift. 
and the challenge of not belonging there, the challenge of feeling invisible, misunderstood there kind of forced me to articulate who I am and to carve out a space for people like me. And so the plan going to Oxford was like, let me do, you know, study a PPE, politics, philosophy and economics, mainly because teachers had told me that would suit you as a course. It's a course about arguing. You have to argue your position and stuff. And, you know, you, you love arguing with us in class, so we should do that. And um, but, when, but really what it became for me, Oxford, was this space to build my own club night and kind of try and hone my skills as an MC, a drum and bass and hip-hop MC. And then, uh, and, then, and then soon after that, to find a, a small crew of people that, like me, didn't quite fit into the, the drama scene there and so started doing acting in, in, in plays and so it just became this creative crucible for me in a way that I hadn't quite expected these were things I loved doing but I didn't know I'd be spending so much time doing them and when it time came to leave Oxford I was like what the hell am I going to do now like I, I can't <laughs> see myself having a career like you know in any of these fields I don't see many people like me having a career in these fields so what what's the next step? And uh, I was kind of left scratching my head for a minute. Yeah. And we should just say, I mean, these these club nights that you started, I guess, within Oxford grew to become very big underground things far beyond Oxford. And but the and, and then the acting, though, I mean, had you, we knew the we know from what we've already talked about, that music went back to maybe, you know, your older brother and the cassettes. How does where where did acting how did it actually first enter the picture of something you even wanted to dabble in? You know, my mom has this larger than life personality. And in a way we were all kind of just all bouncing. I would, I would just be kind of bouncing around the house with her, just doing like voices and characters. And I think, you know, essentially a kind of attention seeking, I guess, being a big <laughs> family, the youngest sibling, didn't speak any English till I was five until I went to school. So when my brother and sister would come back from school speaking English, I mean, to invent some way to get their attention and their love. And, um, and so I would just kind of do whatever it takes, really, in that kind of little sibling way to just guess of love and attention. And so that's, I mean, I guess on a fundamental level, there was that. But in terms of like taking to the stage and acting, I think, you know, again, I'm just very lucky. I think my mum saw that, okay, he likes performing. So I signed up to the drama classes at school as a kid. And, and when I was in high school, I was getting into, you know, a bit of trouble. And as I said, there was some talk about excluding me. And at that point, yeah, I, I just kind of realized that, well, actually I was told by the teacher that <laughs> if you mess around in my classroom, you'll get kicked out. If you want to go and mess around on stage, you'll get a round of applause. So it became a kind of, very, uh, uh, it became a kind of outlet for me, you know, it became a, and it's a very important outlet for me to kind of, I don't know, just express this, all these volcanic feelings I just had, you know, as a lot of teenagers do at that time. And so once you were at Oxford and uh, this continued within the structure of the university or you were doing it outside? Of no, it wasn't, it wasn't part of the kind of um, course. So British universities, you just specialize straight from the jump. I know in American universities, you can be learning Portuguese studies and play the drums for, as, as, a, as a minor and a major. You just kind of pick a course and that's your course. So it was, it was politics and philosophy for me. 
um, and basically just politics. I didn't really have the rigor to deal with the economics or the or the or the <laughs> philosophy, but I could spout opinions, you know, um, all day. And so it, the acting wasn't kind of part of any course or degree course. It was something that people just do outside of outside of that. And it was, yeah, so lucky to be in a city in a student body that took that so seriously and did so much of that. So you graduate, I believe, in 2004. And at that point, I guess there's a question, as you were saying, like, where do you go with any of this? Who is Thelma Holt? Well, so Thelma Holt, the theatre producer, and she produced a lot of West End shows, and she in particular would produce the Japanese um, directorial master uh, Ninagawa's work and uh, bring his kind of adaptations, his very physical adaptations of Shakespeare to the British stage. And Thelma Holt would organise every year the Oxford University Dramatic Society's tour of Japan, a Japan tour. And, um, you know, a company of students would go and tour Shakespeare around Japan, which is incredible. So this is something that I was cast in this and she got to learn about my situation, which was that basically I had applied to drama school. And listen, I applied to drama school with a very kind of like, yeah, I mean, what's the point, you know, kind of attitude because I, I just, again, I was just very cynical about my own prospects in an industry that didn't reflect people like me. And so I applied just to one drama school, Central School of Speech and Drama. And I thought, if I don't get in, it's not meant to be. I got it. I applied to one scholarship fund and said, well, I can't afford it. So if I get this one, I've got it. If not, it's not meant to be. I got, got that scholarship, but there was still a considerable shortfall for the fees. I was broke. Didn't quite come from that kind of family background to plug the gap. And um, although, of course, I had my parents' support and, and blessings and love and goodwill, which I don't take for granted. But I was like, what am I going to do? And, um, you know, Thelma Hoff would produce this Japan tour, learned of my situation and said, she said, how much do you need? And I said, like, you know, I'm like two and a half thousand pounds short. And she said, okay. And the next time I saw her, she just, she just gave me his check. And she said, um, write a thank you letter to this person at this address is one of my like, patrons, benefactors. So I was like, whoa, what just happened? What just happened? You know, so grateful. And, um, yeah, got to start drama school um, after I left Oxford. Amazing, because, you know, you just think about moments where things could have gone in a totally different path, right? I mean, if that didn't happen, who knows where, what would be going on today? Um, so two years later, having attended that very prestigious drama school, you come out, and unlike a lot of people who struggle for years to I guess get work or maybe never get work seems like you were getting it pretty quickly which is uh, a testament I, I imagine to you know that you you had this right from the get-go this ability um, I want to just know I guess the first two projects at least on paper look like The Road to Guantanamo a film in which you played one of the Tipton three and then also a couple of episodes of The Path to 9-11 uh, these are both out in 2006. And I guess I just wonder how those came about so quickly, but also just your outlook at that moment in terms of what am I willing to do? What am I not willing to do? Because even in that same year, you put out, I guess, just to come back to the music track, as 
Riz MC, your first track post nine eleven blues, which I know, you know, caused caused some stir in London and with radio stations, whether or not to play it and all of that. But is it just, you know, these are quite a few things dealing with subject matter that I know based on other statements of yours, you've not necessarily always wanted to be associated with. So just in that moment, what was the what was the worldview? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I guess coming into the industry in 2005, 2006, when I you know, just left drama school, I started doing two things simultaneously. One was I was doing rap battles and doing that in London and kind of doing quite well with that. And then the other thing was, you know, I got offered these jobs. I got offered um, a role in Michael Winterbottom's Road to Guantanamo uh, about three British men who are illegally detained and tortured in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. And then, and then also I got this other job, you know, the path to 9-11. And it's interesting because they're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum of the same subject matter for me. And I was quite young and naive and it was just part of my, it was part of my desire to try and do work that I believed in. But at the same time, I just couldn't believe that I'd be getting any work at all. <laughs> and so I was just finding that balance. And so a job like The Road to Guantanamo was really my dream job. I remember leaving drama school thinking, what am I doing going into being an actor when there's so much in the world that's wrong and there's such, you know, crazy preconceptions about people just, just like me and my family and could I be doing something more, more worthwhile? And The Road to Guantanamo was in a way the answer to my prayers in that it was this incredible acclaimed filmmaker, this improvised film really without a script, which for me after a year of learning Shakespeare, which just felt like a tremendous release. And also a chance to see the world. You know, we went to Afghanistan, Pakistan and Iran. You know, those three passport stamps within three months of each other ended up causing me a lot of problems at airports a decade later going into America. But it was an amazing learning experience and a growing experience and it connected me to a sense of purpose that actually, as an actor, as a storyteller, you can help to shift people's hearts and minds and bring us all a bit closer together. On the other side of it, I was just like, oh, you've been offered this role, Path to 9-11, um, you're playing, you know, some guy, terrorist number, whatever, will you do it? They're going to pay you some money. And I was like, what? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, I'll do it. And I just remember having such a miserable experience making that. Um, I think in the end, I may have even been edited out of it. I was in one scene and, and gl glad to be edited out of it because I think it then later emerged that it was quite a, yeah, skewed account of how 9-11 happened. It was, uh, it was a kind of a, a, yeah, I think I think Madeleine Albright or something may have even tried to sue the makers of it or something. It was just a bit of a mess. And I was like, okay, I don't want to do that kind of stuff. I want to do this kind of stuff. You know, if I have to make story, if I have to tell stories about, being a Muslim post 9-11, which to be honest was the only subset of work available to me, then I want to Thank do stuff yeah. that challenges dominant narratives. And so having had those two ex filming experiences, one that was quite revelatory and one that was that didn't leave me with a good feeling, I, I um, went to the Berlin Film Festival with Road to Guantanamo. We won an award there, but on the way back from the airport, British security services and intelligence officers kind of harassed us and so off the back of that experience and the absurdity of being asked by spies, you know, did you become an actor to further the Muslim struggle? I wrote this rap song, the post 9-11 blues that you mentioned. And that was, I guess, an attempt for me to like 
talk about all this is like I guess I'm a football in you know in this in this game of soccer I guess I'm a clown at this circus come and be terrorist number seven come and challenge the US's dominant narratives come and do a rap song about it here win an award for it and then get get arrested for winning an award at an airport um it just felt like this kind of slightly overwhelming but um absurd um circus and so I wrote this song about it which kind of launched my you know my ability to stop making a way in releasing music. Yeah. I know years later for The Guardian, you wrote a an essay entitled Typecast as a Terrorist, close quote, which I think also dealt with some of what we're talking about now. But you also then described what you've called sort of the three categories of what's available uh, or what was, you know, what how you regarded parts. Uh, I wonder if you can share that because it seems like you're acting career since then has navigated through each of those categories to the point where I think you want to be, but it's interesting just to note how you, how you were looking at things maybe in the aftermath of those initial experiences. Yeah. Well, I kind of always thought that maybe it works in stages, you know, these stages of representation for any under, under represented groups on screen or in culture. And the first stage is a stereotype. So you might be, a, you know, the black drug dealer or the kind of, you know, the Muslim terrorist and, you know, the South Asian minicab driver or whatever. Those things, those tropes that we're used to seeing um, that don't allow these characters to be fully human and stereotypical, you know, portrayals. Then you get stage two, which is, okay, he's a minicab driver, but he's a badass. Okay, these guys are terrorists, but it's a comedy and you love them, like Four Lions. You know, this is about Guantanamo Bay, but you're actually understanding a flip to the story. Those stage two portrayals, I'd say, kind of take place on that racialized terrain, but subvert and challenge dominant narratives rather than doubling down on them with stereotypical portrayals. And I think that was what a lot of that early work I was doing was in that, and proudly in that, in that, you know, wheelhouse, whether it's Road to Guantanamo or Four Lions or Post 9-11 Blues. Yeah, it's about that stuff. You're still only allowing me to tell those stories, but we're going we're gonna to stretch your idea of what that story can be. We're going to stretch your idea of how human this person could be and so on. So that's the second stage. And then the third stage, I'd say, is kind of this, this promised land where you just play a guy, you know? And that guy may be called... Jack or Tim or Dave, they may also be called Rizwan or Kamran or, you know, uh, Akbar. And I think that's an important uh, distinction that people should, you know, I myself, I think, have have been guilty of misunderstanding that that final goal when I've spoken with other actors who are people of color, where you sort of in, on my I'll say I've sort of assumed that the ultimate goal would maybe be to just for people to not see color in the equation but you've said it's not about being post-racial or something it's it's being allowed the the ability to go between it where that's not the primary consideration right because so it's not i don't want to play muslim characters or you know things like that it's yeah right yeah look brad pitt's always going to play white people isn't he that's okay <laughs> samuel l jackson's always going to play black people that's cool that's right, right. so i mean that's fine. You know, it's just a matter of, it's just a matter of like, it's not that, I don't think people want to escape their race or escape their ethnicity, or at least, I mean, I certainly don't. It's about, you just don't want to be shackled to it 
as the def- as the core and central defining thread to your story as a character or as a human it is absolutely part of your story it should be allowed to enrich the characters and the stories that you're a part of but yeah you, you just don't want to be kind of shackled to it you know and i guess the first time that you were afforded the opportunity to not to play a guy where that was just irrelevant any of your personal background i think would have been shifty as the title character this is a 2008 movie you're a young crack dealer who could have been of any background i guess and um you wind up for that one with some a very indie project i think i read three week shoot but with a british independent film award nomination that was that was the maybe the beginning of of that sort of an experience and also of maybe kind of falling in love with the the truly indie filmmaking process yeah absolutely i think you're right i mean shifty was um shot in 18 days for a hundred thousand pounds and uh, Ill Manners also was shot in 18 days for £100,000. I mean, there's something about that high, the high-wire act of micro-budget filmmaking that has just really massively informed my approach to the work, how I like to work, the pace of the work, the fact that we're all hands on deck, we're all kind of part of this family and we're all going on this, you know, breakneck speed ride together, so hold on tight. It, it really... I know that I just really connected with that style of filmmaking where you don't have all the time and all the money in the world and you just got to kind of bring it. And I guess, uh, you know, that's something that I've been eager to kind of reconnect with more recently with, you know, my last couple of projects. I also believe it's a space of experimentation and and creative growth to go back to those, you know, to, to really to storytelling in its rawest form with its kind of least possible constituent parts. Well, before I go on to the next project that did happen, I've got to ask you about one that I've read did not happen and kind of in a a funny way. Maybe it wasn't funny at the time, but you were almost, I assume, the the character that Dev Patel played in in Slumdog Millionaire? No, not not that character. I think it was the other character, his brother. Um, Okay. Yeah, so... Yeah, it's funny because I remember at that point when the Slumdog Millionaire audition came up, I was like... This is the only time there's ever going to be a lead role in a film, in a Hollywood film, for someone like me. This is it. It's all or nothing. It's your one opportunity. It's never going to happen again. So to go in there and to really mess up the audition in a hilarious way, I mean, basically, Danny Boyle, (laughs) just the nicest guy in the world, just put me so at ease, really encouraged me as this nervous young actor to come out of my shell and wanted me to be kind of aggressive with him. So he said, you can, you can grab me if you want, you can do it. And, I, and I, I just don't quite remember what happened, but I just had him up against the wall and kind of ripped a couple of the buttons off his shirt, his nice shirt, and just kind of <laughs> torn Danny Boyle's shirt off. Um, <laughs> uh, or at least popped a couple of buttons off it. And I just re- remember him saying, okay, yeah, thank you, thanks very much. And just leaving <laughs> going, what the fuck, what did I just do? <laughs> And of course, I didn't get it, and the film was brilliant, and everyone was in it was cast perfectly, and I loved watching that film, and I'm so pleased for what that film did, you know, on a global stage for British independent film, for South Asian culture. I just had this thought in my head that, like, well, that's it. Like, that's it. That's, that's the end of any opportunities that might present themselves. Like, how often does something like that come along? And it's interesting, as I look back, just how how deeply instilled this 
mentality is in 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 so many of us of of scarcity and of um there only being room for one there can only be one film like this there can only be one actor in this position there can only be one you know and and it's of course, of course it's nonsense you know what we're seeing now is like with the world opening up and being such a global market and audience for storytelling and film and tv is like no like there's just people want an abundance of of right. stories you know and specificities to connect with but at the time it was not funny at the time it was like oh that's <laughs> it that's me done i'm out yeah well so slumdog came out in 2008 the same year as shifty and then i guess the next big moment which was it sounds like a really a tough decision for reasons that will be obvious for people that have been you know listening to what we've been talking about is that on the basis i guess of post 911 blues your your music as opposed to your acting you get contacted by chris morris who wants to make four lions which is essentially a satire about you know potential suicide bombers who are kind of hapless and you're now having broken out of the kind of i the post 911 yeah stereotypes you're now being asked to in a at least on paper potentially go back to a part like that. And I wonder how were you convinced that that was not in fact what that part would be doing? So yeah, Post 9-11 Blues was this satirical rap song, like a joke rap song where I was kind of poking fun of this, this, this Post 9-11 circus of fear that we were all in and racial profiling. And Chris Morris reached out and I was only vaguely aware of him, but you know, to my own, that's shame on me because Chris at this point was already the kind of Kaiser Soze of British comedy in that he was this mysterious figure who was responsible for some of the greatest kind of and most controversial comedy moments in British radio and TV. He had this satirical news show called The Day to Day and also Brass Eye. And he made them with Armando Iannucci, who's now well known to American, you know, uh, audiences through Veep. And they were kind of partners in crime, basically. And crime it was, you know, they would just really push all the hot buttons, whether it's um, scaremongering around pedophilia or the war on drugs. or It just, it, you, if you don't, I advise anyone to go on YouTube and just go on a Chris Morris rabbit hole. And... Mm -hmm. um, and he came to me and said, look, I want to make a film, uh, tell a story about this kind of world, similar kind of world to your song. And we just struck up this friendship where he'd kind of reach out for a coffee every three months or so, every two, three months for three years. And it, it, to a point where I'd kind of forgotten about any kind of project. I thought he was probably a bit of a fantasist and he just was like a cool guy. And we'd talk politics and news and religion. And I'd put him in touch with you know, acquaintances of mine who had gone to become researchers for the film. But every time he came back, he just knew more and more about this kind of like, um, you know, British Islam on a street level, you know, a working class British Muslim life. And I was just so impressed. And eventually when he gave me this script to have a look at, yeah, I, I said, no, thank you. You know, I don't want to play a terrorist. And, and then he said, look, this isn't what you think it is. And it was just from trusting his intentions and trusting him as a person, I almost, to be honest, just thought, well, look, no one's going to see this anyway. I know what it's like <laughs> with British indie films. Hardly anyone's going to see it. You know, if we're lucky, right. I'll do it. I think he's a cool guy. Like, let's see what happens. And, um, and, and in many ways, I just think it's still, I mean, particularly in the UK, it's kind of been the defining piece of work I've done 
it's it's really holds that special place in people's hearts in the UK where it's like for a generation of people it's like it's their favorite film you know yeah, like no, you it's it's and that's down to Chris Morris's genius and attention to detail and interestingly as you know as a as a as a, as a white man making a film about British Muslims he may have been prevented from making that film today whereas at that time he put in the three and a half years of research and you know, I think it's a testament to like how we can use our empathy and imagination to understand and animate characters who aren't like us and, and, and bring people together. And, and yeah, I was lucky to be, lucky to be uh, a part of that. It was a lot of fun to make. Jesse Armstrong was a writer on that with Sam Bain, who's, who wrote Succession. Succession, yeah. Just a, a quick follow-up, because I think the specific way that he kind of framed it is interesting in terms of, it sounds like this, like a reframing it in your in your mind what did he what did he bring in as a point of reference oh he was uh, i mean he said uh listen i know you're thinking is this a step towards or a step away from brown james bond this is a step towards brown james bond i was like james <laughs> bond wasn't even anything to do with what i was thinking about you know and i was like what but it's just like chris has his way with words but i guess what he was saying is these are characters you will be rooting for. You will be on these characters' side. This is not about pointing the finger and demonizing a community. This is about saying, hey, guess what? We're all human beings. We're all kind of hapless idiots on this, in this one life. Now, you know, come on this ride with us. And um, it's, it's a fascinating thing tonally, I think, Four Lions. I think Nightcrawler does something similar in that it's like, it's tonally quite ambiguous, leaves you quite ambivalent. You don't know if you should be laughing or crying. And I just love movies like that, that they know what they are, but they're not telling you what they are, you right, know, as a movie. Right. So that's Four Lions, which is then Biffa number two, Biffa nomination number two. I think we mentioned that you got back together with Winterbottom for Trishna 2011. And then 2012, uh, I guess a, a, another one of these that may have required some internal debate about, I guess, you know, in your own scale of, in terms of subject matter that deals with some of the topics we've talked about, like, does it merit my involvement? In this case, the reluctant fundamentalist, 2012, a guy who's a Wall Street analyst from Pakistan, who is seen differently by his coworkers, by his girlfriend after 9-11 anything to say about that one? You know, that was actually something I pursued ardently. Um, the Reluctant Fundamentalist, yes, absolutely takes place in that stage two terrain in a way. Um, and by the way, I don't say it's, it's not a stage two is, uh, is below stage three, you know, I don't, <laughs> it's, it's just that it's just that it's a necessary arena to be actually telling stories that directly engage in these, you know, zeitgeisty topics and these controversial issues and trying to challenge the dominant narratives that, that might plague those arenas. And so I read the book, loved it, found out Mira Nair had the rights, loved her films, and just pursued it, sent in a bunch of auditions that were rejected out of hand, and just never really managed to break into that casting process until I finally, you know, managed to score like a five-minute meeting with her. I actually had my heart broken. I'd been, I think I'd gone up for that film three times and I'd been um, turned down each time. 
And it was finally that I said, look, I'm just, I was actually on my way to kind of shoot a music video for, for my album at the time. And my agent said, look, I know you don't want to go, but after everything you've been through, but she's asking to see you. She's in London for like, she's got 10 minutes before she has to leave for her flight or whatever. And I was like, God, damn it. okay, I'll go along <laughs> and quickly read. And yeah, and was cast in it. And again, just such a privilege really to bring such a well-loved book to life with such a, such an important filmmaker, you know, within the kind of, within world cinema and the South Asian diaspora as well. And a learning journey for me, you know, learning journey, reconnecting with my roots. Cause, cause you know, I play a Pakistani guy at this point. I've been to Pakistan like once in my life. I'm a Londoner. I'm from Northwest London. It's kind of like I had to play a Pakistani. I had to really, really get good at the language and poetry and, and, and just steep myself within that, within that, yeah that way of being and in doing so it just allowed me to reconnect in 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 a in a beautiful way yeah same year was ill manners which another biffa nomination and then where i think that for many americans maybe they first kind of discovered your work would have been nightcrawler as you as you uh the film you mentioned a moment ago from dan gilroy it's you and jake gyllenhaal that's one that it sounds like dan gilroy was originally envisioning a, a white American to play that. I just wonder how does something like that, is that you, is he familiar with your prior work and he, and he finds out you're interested and it changes, or is that you saying, you know, give me the chance or how does that, it was actually that was really weirdly neither. Terrific. It was kind of weirdly neither of those. And he actually, I don't think he'd envisioned, he'd envisioned it as a white American character. I, I think he was open to it being any ethnicity, but I think we met and he just said, look, you're definitely not right for this role. I just thought I'd take a general meeting with you because I like your agent. I think we almost shared an agent at the time or something. And he said, look, like, you're wrong for this. You're like, you trained Shakespeare and you're like this British guy. And I don't know, this is just very L.A. And he's just like a very kind of down and out cat who doesn't have it all together. And I don't think that's your energy. You seem a bit more kind of on it and sharp and I don't know I was like that's very kind of you but um <laughs> but yeah no cool like I'm not trying to chase anything if you don't feel it's right and we just got talking and he just went you know what why don't you just send me a tape and I just went all right cool I'll send you a tape I mean I don't I mean I've got nothing to lose I know I'm not getting this and there's a tremendous freedom that came with that and he was really into it and after that he was like um, okay, great. Do you want to fly to LA? And I was like, I can't fly to LA. I'm broke. And, uh, <laughs> and I just, I remember I had to fly to LA and just to bet, bet on myself. So I yeah. just spent that whole nine hour flight, just running it for nine hours, you know? And I remember just landing and seeing Jake Gyllenhaal in the room and going, Whoa, it's that dude. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and yeah, getting, getting the role. And it was something that I think like, uh, it came to me at a time when I was actually kind of I thought I'd kind of reached the end of the road a little bit. I don't know, as an actor, like, it's, it's funny, you know, you mentioned I had like, you know, three or four Biffa nominations at this point. I was, still wasn't really making any money. I wasn't really being offered that next tier of roles financially or in terms of billing. They didn't quite exist, particularly in the British film industry where they rely so much on historical period dramas. And I was just like... And, and I remember we'd shot the pilot of the night of in 2012 
which I thought, huh, maybe this could be something. And then that didn't get picked up. And then James Gandolfini passed away. And then that was that done with. And so I guess I just felt like this is, I don't understand where else I'm going to go from here. You know, earning like a couple of grand for a movie. I can't live like this. I'm not going to be able to move forward or start a family. I don't know. And, and Nightcrawler just came to me as a kind of, it was like a bit of a Hail Mary. It was like, all right, like, let's try this thing. <laughs> And, it, and I, you know, I think it ended up kind of really opening some doors. I was going to ask, because, I mean, that's a great movie. And I I figured that after that, that people must have been much more aware of you and excited to work with you. But I um, I guess what I, you know, you, you touched on the next big thing, which would have been the night of, which I guess took things to a whole nother level. But how did that come back from the dead, essentially, where... And that's maybe not the right way to put it because it was a it was a sad, very sad thing that had happened to. I guess you're saying it wasn't even picked up when Gandolfini was around to continue if they wanted to. So how did it with Torturo and you now get a, a second life? You know, someone once said to me, it's like this business is like I'm using a soccer analogy, which may not work, um, but it's like you're waiting by the goal. You're waiting in the six-yard box. You're waiting for the ball to come in because you're going to head it in. You're going to score a goal. And the ball actually comes in from behind you, hits you on the back of the head, knocks you out cold, and accidentally dribbles over the goal line. And that's how it kind of works sometimes because something like The Reluctant Fundamentalist, which, I mean, creatively it was something that was a, I was really able to sink my teeth into and was really well received. It, it didn't kind of lead on to... The, anything you know work-wise or even Nightcrawler I think people noticed it but it didn't quite lead on to anything work-wise it took an old job which was the the night of which just said we shot the pilot in 2012 to be resurrected for me to kind of get that um I guess revive my career in a way that I felt was like kind of had reached a bit of an end of, of the line not not dead end but just it kind of was plateauing in a way that maybe I thought was unsustainable long term and, you know, it's interesting because, yeah, the story of that is is just, is wild. I mean, we shot the pilot. Um, we were certain HBO would want to make it. They didn't want to make it. They didn't pick it up. And then James Gandolfini, and then we thought, we actually thought, actually, I think FX wanted it and some other networks were like, we'll make it. So then HBO started considering it again, and then James Gandolfini tragically passed away, which is such a loss to all of us, you know, mm-hmm. within this community. I think his performance as Tony Soprano is one of the all-time great performances. If you look at the, am- the amount of screen time he has, there's never a false note, the range that he carries within that, the, the comedy, the, 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 the terror he strikes into your heart. It's, it's, he goes so deep, it's just, and it kind of changed film. It changed TV, mm. you know, that performance carried that show, which changed everything that we're doing today. So that was a tremendous and tragic loss. And um, we were all quite shaken by it and just thought, well, then that's that. And, and then, you know, a year and a half later, we hear, I think Robert De Niro wants to do it. So De Niro attaches to do it and they start writing all the scripts and they get all the scripts ready. Just when they're about to shoot, De Niro says, I'm just going to go and do this other movie. And so then again, it falls apart. And But at this point, we're poised to go. And Steve's alien said, you know who I always had in mind for this? It was John Turturro. 
And of course, it's one of those performances where when you see it, you can't imagine anyone else in the role. And, and so that's how that came about. It was a real kind of, uh, it was a bit of a roller coaster. That's amazing. Uh, just the, the um, ambition of it. I mean, I think that it was like six months of your life, right? Making that, it was just a huge undertaking, right? It was, it was a bit longer. I think it was about eight months. Um, I, I kind of like to do a lot of research. You know, I think as a lot of actors do I think it's part of the, the gift of this profession is getting to live these lives and meet different people and um, learn new skills. And so I spent a lot of time speaking to people who had, you know, were Rikers or who had left Rikers or who had been wrongfully convicted of crimes and had you know, decades of their life taken away. Um, I was, you know, volunteering in South Asian youth groups and stuff in Queens and just trying to immerse myself into that world and into that character. And, um, and so that was, you know, a couple of months, months of prep. And in a way it was kind of, it, I think it just, I remember the Khalif Browder story came out of the young, young man who committed suicide after being wrongfully, you know, detained in Rikers. And it, I think we just all felt the pressure of that, you know, between meeting and interviewing all these people and what was going on in the news. And I remember this, the um, um, Adnan Saeed story, you know, um, the serial podcast that came out while we were filming. It was just in the air. And so I think we all just were really trying to shoulder that and, and, and give it, give it everything. But it was tough. It was a tough shoot. It was a long shoot. It was, uh, it was a lot of bit of a kind of body transformation in there as well, which was new for me. Mm -hmm. and, and it was, uh, it was a lot, but I was really blessed to be surrounded by mentors really in Michael K. Williams, in John Turturro, in Steve Zalian, um, Jeannie Berlin, you know, experienced actors who I could watch and learn from having never, you know, come basically come from indie films, five week shoots doing a six month, marathon i didn't even know how to approach that kind of thing well that's what i was gonna ask i mean with something like that i'm assuming like most movies it's done out of sequence and all that so just to be able to emotionally map out a, a part over such a long period of time and with such highs and lows and things I, I i i would think it's something like you'd never done before yeah it, it wasn't it was something that really challenged and stretched my own process um introduced me to new ways of working actually um that forced me to adapt in how I work because that kind of sprint ethic we've got three weeks we've got five weeks boom we've got two takes let's go that doesn't apply anymore it's something else it's a it's holding space for a character over a longer period of time within your life and not burning out as well and um yeah, I remember John Turturro giving me lots of great advice. He always gives his acting advice in metaphors um, to do with either sex or cooking. So he'd always <laughs> be like, you know, you know, when you're making when you're making meatballs, you got to make the sauce. Then just put the meat in the sauce. That's all you got to do. And he was like, huh, I think am I the meatball and the scene is the sauce, or is the or am I the sauce and the? But it's there's a wisdom in there, and you just take take that forwards with you, you know. All right. So within a short period of time after that came out, you are an Emmy winner. That's a, a historic thing. It was a major moment for a lot of people, I'm sure for you. Uh, you're on the cover of Time magazine, one of the 100 most influential people in the world. You're 
I believe around that time speaking to parliament. I mean, things it seems like went from maybe the equivalent of like 20 miles per hour to 200. May, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but on paper it would look that way. How did you, and, and let's not forget that I guess it was maybe as a result of that. I don't know if these things were already in the works, but Rogue One, Jason Bourne, the first truly big studio movies I think that you were a part of kind of overlappingly just a lot changed in a short amount of time and you have said that as you were starting Rogue One having shot I think five movies and recorded two solo albums and been writing and been traveling a lot over that year before there was something of just literally a physical reaction to everything that had taken place can you kind of explain what was going on well, it was, I think it was a bit life-changing what happened after the night of, and as you said, suddenly just getting a different level of attention and suddenly kind of being introduced to the creative industries, uh, the industry of, of creativity and not just the craft, which had been taking up most of my time, suddenly understanding, okay, well, okay, so you have, what's a, what does a publicist do? Okay, what's a <laughs> stylist? What's, uh, okay, so... How do the American agencies work? Oh, my American agents are engaged in a different way now. Okay, so, oh, I've got to go out to LA just to meet people. It was all kind of new to me, but yes, I, you know, it may have felt like 20 miles an hour in the big scheme of things, but from me internally, I've, I, I'm just, I'd already been doing it for quite a long time. I'd already built up a body of work in the UK. I feel grateful in a way that I wasn't just, hey, here's my first movie and it's a global... Sm I, I just had spent years doing this thing I love and doing it because I love doing it and just gaining experience away from the attention and the glare of people that can be so disorienting. Um, so things did shift for me, but I'm grateful that I had that kind of bedrock in a way from this, you know, decade of doing it in the UK. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was a crazy time because filming Star Wars and, and Jason Bourne, we filmed them both at the same time and, you know, I had some music out and, um, it was a lot going on and, and I guess I, I basically just had to stop, um, call it a kind of, sometimes it just stopped in your tracks, your body stops you in your tracks and it's, uh, your body has a kind of wisdom, you know, that you have to kind of obey. And it was actually a moment of real reassessment for me of, of kind of suddenly being part of this whirlwind and this um, big shiny noisy storm that part of me had always thought maybe I'd wanted suddenly being in the thick of it, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't quite what, uh, you know, what, why I'd been doing it for 10 years. It wasn't the thing that kept me going, you know, um, for all that period of time and being stopped in my tracks actually was just a tremendous gift. Again, I think the challenges can be the gifts, you know, as I, as I keep saying, and it forced me to really reassess what was important to me. And in that moment coming off those projects, um, you know, your Venoms, Borns and all that kind of stuff, I kind of just made a decision to go, I, I want to just make choices where I can continue to try and grow, you know, and to try and um, do stuff that, that really, yeah, that, that, that I just really connect to on a, on a deep level. Not that I did it with Rogue One, Born and Venom. I connected with it 
in, in a way, it was, it was, there was tremendous growth that came about from working on those productions because it's a different kind of animal working on those studio pictures. It's a different kind of athleticism, a different kind of marathon running, you know, as, as we said, almost like those bigger TV shows. But I guess I just wanted to go back to that, the kernel of that raw simplicity of those shifties and four lions and ill manners and road to Guantanamo's. And so kind of having a bit of a, you know, wobble and a kind of, whoa, I've got to stop for a minute, actually really helped me to see more clearly what I felt my path might be forwards. Which really does bring us to this most recent film, which I think is, for my two cents, as good as anything you've ever done, Sound of Metal. Just to quickly connect the dots from that year of 2016, where there's Rogue One, Jason Bourne, then in those intervening years, you had the the uh, Archon Girls, you had the Sisters Brothers, you had, as you mentioned, Venom. Uh, but here we are now with Sound of Metal, which I guess I, I was, from what I could find, it looks like that started in 2018. The rollout has been, I'm sure, affected by the pandemic, so it's a longer wait than usual, but um, coming soon. And basically, just unlike anything up to that point, this this guy who who, in the midst of you know, his prime has a uh, unexpected, life jarring thing happen. Was again back to what I would think is like you're saying the scale of those early projects of true indie. How did it come about? And have you ever fully, have you ever so immersed yourself in a part as having to learn sign language and drumming to an extent and all the different things that went into playing this guy, Ruben? No, I think this is certainly the most that's been asked of me as an actor and I was excited about that. You know, I think um, over the years, I think I'd often been asked to bring a part of myself to a role or bring this version of myself or that version of myself. And I think Darius Marder, part of his gift as a director is to invite everyone to bring all of their selves to his work and his film set and to play with all the colors of their rainbow. but that also requires commitment and stepping up. And he told me very early on, we're not going to fake it. You're going to play the drums. You're going to play a gig. We're going to do it in a club in Boston. You know, you've got seven months, do your thing. And so, yeah, we spent that period of time just playing the drums every day with my teacher, Guy Licata, um, learning American Sign Language every day with my instructor, Jeremy Stone, who both became friends and therapists in a way as well. You spend four hours a day with, with a guy every day for several months. That's what happens. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was immersive. It was challenging. It was daunting. But it was a tremendous privilege, you know. Um, I feel like it opened me up in new ways. Um, can be quite verbose in, as a rapper, you know, and play with words. And this, these were nonverbal methods of communication, drumming, you know, this nonverbal, the primal nonverbal communication, sign language. Again, it's about communicating with your whole body. And so I think the process of preparation was, was a challenge, but it, it was also a gift in that I think it, it opened me up in, in new ways. You know, Jeremy Stone, my sign instructor always says, Hearing people are emotionally repressed, or at least that's a that's a, a trope within the deaf community. They say hearing people hide behind words. And I remember the first time we started conversing in ASL, and I'd got to a level of you know fluency where I could just chat to him about anything and started talking about my character. That within you know signing within character, that it just 
it rattled me emotionally in a way I wasn't expecting. And so, yeah, I guess again, it's that, you know, that, that challenge, the challenge becomes the, the gift, you know, the thing you're like, oh, how am I going to do this part? It's like, no, no, that, that really daunting part of it, that is what's going to unlock this for you, you know? Do you have in your mind when you're doing something like this, any other point of reference beyond the script? Like I, watching it, I was thinking, you know, in a way, I feel like this guy is almost a relative of Mickey Rourke and the wrestler or something where it's somebody who is so in his own mind defined or his identity is so interwoven with what he does that when that is jeopardized, it's, it's like his, you know, he's lost. And then I also find that at the end there, and we'll say a spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, just kind of uh, skip over this when, you know, we, we essentially winds up caught between worlds. And I think that I'd really be curious to know what in your mind, you know, it's like a Michael Clayton thing where the movie ends and we're staring at this guy's face for a long period of time trying to figure out what it's, I guess it's like a Rorschach test. Um, what is he thinking? I'd, I'd pose to you when he's now turned off his ability to hear voluntarily. Hmm. In terms of like what I had in mind, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think it's actually something that a lot of us can relate to. A lot of us are living through right now in the pandemic is this idea of we define ourselves through our work or these external roles that we play, that we perform, you know, whatever, husband, father, drummer, you know, and, um, and when that's taken away from us, as it has been from, for so many of us during lockdown and the pandemic, we're forced to sit with ourselves and stare into the void and sit in the silence and try and derive a sense of self-worth that isn't dependent on that, that, those external roles that we play. And that's really Ruben's journey. That's what he's forced to confront. You know, we made it before the pandemic, but it feels very resonant to the arc emotionally of what a lot of us faced in the pandemic. And, um, and I guess that journey, you know, you're saying towards the end of the film, for me, it's about a journey from looking outwards for acceptance and validation to accepting yourself, you know, finding that love and validation a little bit close to, to home, finding it internally. And, you know, I have to say it, part of what attracted me to the role is, you know, what you were talking about, that episode when I was filming all those bigger movies and I had a kind of... Uh, you know, I stopped in my tracks a little bit by my own body. That was certainly what drew me to this project. I was like, I can relate to this. I'm, I'm a workaholic. I, I, def I derive my sense of worth and identity from this as a performer. Remember what it was like when you had that, when you thought maybe that's taken away from you forever. Where did you go then? You go to a dark place. If you can get through that dark place, you come to a place of self-acceptance. So it was a journey that I'd kind of been on very recently and I wanted to kind of explore again, you know? Um, so, yeah. It's really, really interesting. And I guess in its own way, um, Mogul Mowgli, which I haven't yet had the chance to, to see, is a variation of that, right? I mean, it's another person who's arc, yeah. in the thick of it and stopped by a, by a physical. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was thinking of, um, you know, Tom Hardy is uh, someone who I've known for many years and, you know, we kind of came up together around the same time and, uh, you know, it's interesting. He said something like someone asked him like, dude, you play a lot of gangsters. And he said, you know what I do? I guess it's like a, it's like, you know, it's, it's my study. 
that's the study that I'm going deep into. You know, you have artists that keep drawing apples. You know, um, you have sushi chefs that keep making out rice. And I guess on some level, part of what I'm interested in studying and returning to again and again is characters who are trying to work out who they are. You know, like, because that's something that I can relate to. And that's something I can, a question that I can ask from a personal place that, that maybe I can shed light on for audiences, but also for myself. That's something I can work through my own stuff, through these characters. Who am I without my performance? Who am I when I in, in, end up in this no man's land culturally between hearing and deaf? Who am I when I end up between New York and Pakistan as the reluctant fundamentalist? You know, am I a math genius or a drug dealer and shifty? You know, what, where, where, you know, that, that kind of identity question is, is one that fascinates me. And so that's why I kind of returned to it in a way. I said, let me return to it in an even more personal place. And that's Mogul Mowgli. And, and it's also an opportunity for me to explore, you know, as a writer and producer, to try and kind of play with a, a kind of film grammar that is um, heavily influenced by my own roots. You know, I think it's really interesting filmmakers like Khalil Joseph and Arthur Jaffa talk about this idea of black visual intonation and about how black cinema should borrow from jazz as a template and not just kind of Hollywood cinema, for, for example. And I just kind of, myself and Bassam Tariq um, kind of asked each other, well, what would a kind of neo, you know, neo-Muslim new wave cinema look like, you know, what would, how might we borrow from motifs and, and, and her heritage of this artistic tradition to create our own language? And so we, we have, you know, Mogul Mowgli tells a story about art and identity using some of that, you know, artistic template of, his, of Islamic art, of magical realism, you know, of non-linear storytelling. So, so I guess it's it's similar on paper, but when you really get into this under the skin of it, I mean, they they just feel like totally different characters and films. Sure. And that's I guess that's the trick of the eye, right? It's like on paper you group people things together, and then when you get under the skin, it's the lived experience is so different. Absolutely. Well, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun watching your work, and I thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate you. Thanks so much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.